You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. Today we'll ask what's next for Hong Kong's pro-democracy protests, and we'll hear from Bulgaria about an election that has left that country's political direction as confused as ever. But we begin in Brazil, where President Dilma Rousseff faces a runoff election on the 26th of October after she failed to win a majority of votes last Sunday. The centre-left president, who won 42% of the vote, will face Aécio Neves, a centre-right candidate who won 34%. Mr Neves won his second place at the expense of Marina Silva, a charismatic environmentalist who was leading in the polls a month ago, but whose support collapsed in the final days of the campaign. So what happened? And what are Mr Neves' chance of toppling Dilma and thus ending 12 years of centre-left government in Brazil? To find out, I'm joined from Sao Paulo by our Latin American correspondent, Tom Hennigan. Tom, we were expecting a runoff, but the battle to be Dilma's challenger was something of a cliffhanger. Absolutely. Uh, all the polls since mid-August had shown Marina Silva as being the opposition candidate that would go on to face uh, President Dilma in the runoff. Um, and that drew withering uh, fire from the PT campaign. It was the most aggressive, negative campaign um, of the four presidential elections I've covered in Brazil. And her support collapsed, particularly in the last few days. And the centre-right candidate, Aécio Neves, who many of his supporters had dropped, thinking that Marina was the better bet in order to uh, get Dilma out of power, they migrated back to him and Marina's uh, support in the last few days just absolutely evaporated. And the final polls on Friday and Saturday showed Aesio and Marina in a technical heat, but in fact he ended up beating her by 12 points on Sunday, so it was quite the surprise. And what do you think was it that actually made the change? Because she she appears to have a very colourful background, Marina Silva. He, Aesio Neves, is a much more conventional kind of candidate. So what swung it for him in the end? I think, one, Marina did not handle uh, well uh, the negative campaign that the PT threw at her. And the PT, I think, were very afraid... The PT of, is the Workers' Party of uh, President Dilma. Sorry, the, the Workers' Party of President Dilma. Uh, that's their Portuguese initials. Um, the, the campaign that they unleashed against her was, was highly negative, and I think that was a sign of how much they feared her in a runoff round. Because Marina's background, and uh, she is the daughter of illiterate rubber tappers in the Amazon, she is a uh, mixed African race, she knows what poverty is, she was in the PT for a long time, uh, much longer than President Dilma herself. So there was um, a fear within the PT that she would be able to grab a large segment of the PT vote in a, in a runoff round. So they concentrated their fire on her. Another problem, though, is that she was running as the candidate of a small party. And Brazil is a, is a continental country. It has many different regions, a huge population. And to try and get your vote out, you need allies in all the 26 states in the country. And Marina's allies were often uncompetitive, and that limited her vote. And it showed once again that in Brazil, machine politics counts and she didn't have a big enough machine. Now, the background, Tom, to this election is Brazil's economic fall from grace. What actually has been happening to the economy? Well, when uh, President Dilma came into power, she took over an economy that was growing at 7.5% a year, largely driven by a consumer boom. And that was the, the Workers' Party had um, increased the purchasing power of uh, 
Brazil's poor. They were buying more consumer goods. Global companies were flooding into Brazil to set up plants to, to manufacture these goods, to sell them to this new emerging class, which had tens of millions of people. And um, that ran out of steam, largely because a lot of, of uh, these uh, poor Brazilians had taken on a certain amount of debt. They started to rein in their spending. And the economy itself was becoming very expensive. Uh, Brazil has very poor infrastructure. So a lot of these companies that came down here found it was hard to get educated people. It was hard to move goods around. It was very bureaucratic getting things in and out of the country's ports and whatnot. And that started to slow down growth. Then President Rousseff, she had a look at what was happening and decided that the best solution was not to tackle some of Brazil's bottlenecks, but to try and, and interfere in certain markets. And that put off uh, investors. They started pulling money off the table. Brazil still attracts quite a bit of inward investment, but nothing like it was doing under President Lula um, before Dilma. So that started slowing down the economy, and she really hasn't managed to work her way back to the growth that the PT was able to deliver before she took over the presidency. And she's already said that if she wins in the second round, she's going to change her finance minister. He has very little credibility left, neither amongst voters or with markets. So there could be a change in direction should she manage to win the second round and stay in power. Now, Mr. Neves says he's going to make Brazil a better place to do business in. How is he planning to do that? He is planning, as all opposition candidates do in Brazil, to, uh, you know, they promise to tackle all these bottlenecks, to invest in infrastructure, to be more friendly to investors, to get them to invest in new roads, new ports, uh, new highways. Um, he is talking about an education revolution, as is the president. Um, so all the candidates, every time in Brazil, always make these promises that we're going to tackle all of these things of, of, that create what they call here the Brazil cost, the high cost of doing business in Brazil. Um, so he is promising to do all that. The team he has assembled, is, uh, his economics team, is quite well respected by markets. He is the former head of the central bank here, lined up to be his new finance minister. Uh, he has talked about adjustments which he says is to rein in profligate government spending. And the president's team have been quite quick to point out to poor Brazilians that, well, adjustments might be another word for austerity. So there's a, that's going to be, I think, a very uh, closely fought part of the next three weeks of the campaign. Now, as you mentioned, Tom, Dilma fought a very aggressive campaign in the first round, particularly by Brazilian standards. Can we expect something similar this time round? I think we can. Um, just because this was the, the Workers' Party's poorest performance in election, presidential election since 1998. So I'd say that they are feeling under pressure um, from the opposition. Marina Silva is all set now to endorse Aécio Neves. That will keep further pressure on the president, uh, that they will think that maybe Aécio can attract quite a few of Marina's voters over to try and close the gap with the president. Um, also, though, you have, as always in Brazilian election campaigns, scandals. But when it comes to election time, obviously both sides try and use the other uh, side, their adversaries, scandals to their own benefit. And um, Ayesio Neves, he has a couple of skeletons in his own closet from the time when he was governor of Minas Gerais, the second most populous state in Brazil, including having a state government build a little-used airport near his family ranch, which has raised some eyebrows. And then he would be seeking to use a, 
uh, involving scandal within Petrobras, the giant state oil company, which could involve hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars of money siphoned out of what is Brazil's biggest company. Tom Hennigan in Sao Paulo, thank you. After almost two weeks of street protests, pro-democracy campaigners in Hong Kong have agreed to hold formal talks with the government about their demand for a fully free vote on the territory's next leader or chief executive in 2017. The number of demonstrators on the streets has dwindled from tens of thousands to hundreds, but the protest in Hong Kong remains the most significant political challenge to Beijing's authority since the Tiananmen Square protests in 1989. But where do they go from here? And can Beijing compromise in its plan to limit the choice of candidates in the 2017 election to an officially approved list? To discuss this, I'm joined from Beijing by our correspondent Clifford Coonan and here in studio by the Irish Times foreign policy editor Patrick Smith. Clifford, what do we know about this agreement to hold formal talks between the protesters and Hong Kong's government? Well, what's happening is that the different leaders of the protest groups um, are holding talks with uh, government officials now. Um, which has led to an easing of the tension in the streets in Hong Kong. Um, and uh, basically this is trying to look at the impact of almost two weeks of demonstrations. Um, and they're going to try and find um, find common ground in which to see how to resolve the, the sort of standoff between those seeking um, uh, more democracy for Hong Kong in 2017 and between the, the government side, which is basically appeasing, uh, appeasing the Beijing side. Now, the size of the protests has been shrinking over recent days. Is that a sign of popular support evaporating? Um, it's it's hard to tell. I mean, I think it, 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 a lot of it is just the fact that um, it wasn't really sustainable, that you'd have tens of thousands every day. Um, people were going back to work after the public holiday. Um, and also it was, um, it, you know, it was more to make a point um, than, than I don't think they ever planned to, to occupy for a sustained period. But um, and now it's, it's dwindled now to blockades at, at the three main protest sites in the city, um, and the schools are back as well. And there's various um, there's various um, angles like that. So um, what they're looking at is um, um, you know more more sort of focused uh, occupation, and um, with that in mind, then that they can. Um, start these talks with the government. Now, the uh, the government, for its part, it seems to have been shifting between different strategies for dealing with the protesters. Can you take us through how the official response has been developing? Well, the official response, I mean, um, back in the 28th, when, when um, they, this all started, um, they were saying no no protests, and suddenly we had the tear gas being used against the protesters in, um, in downtown Hong Kong, which horrified everyone and um, around the world. I think these images of, of families with children being tear gassed by the Hong Kong police uh, are going to be very hard to, uh, for people to get it out of their, their heads for a long time to come. And then um, it basically, things uh, after that calmed down a bit. The government realized they may have overreacted. Um, I mean, these are, not, these are not hardcore protesters. This is not like um, the streets of Genoa against the G7. These are, these are middle class, very sophisticated, um, predominantly very young um, protesters and um, so the, the government reaction they calmed down a bit then we had um, some pro-Beijing groups who many believe are linked to the triads um, the organized crime gangs um, they attacked one of the protest sites in Mong Kok and that escalated things again and led to cancellation of, of talks about talks and since then they're now having talks about talks again so it's been a kind of a it's, it's, it's been a rocky road over the last week, but at the moment things are looking um, 
are looking calmer. Although I see tonight that that hundreds of protesters chased away a group of um, of pro Beijing um, protesters who were trying to to um, approach the the Occupy Central group in Admiralty in in downtown Hong Kong. Now uh, these protests are major news all over the world. But in mainland China, how are they being reported? Well, what you're seeing in mainland China is um, they, they are being reported, but but um, it's it's very muted. Um, it's basically more um, rather than being reported on. I think it's probably better to say they're being commented on. So what you're seeing are fairly regular editorials in the People's Daily, which is the the official organ of the Communist Party, um, saying that you know Hong Kong um, mustn't embrace chaos, or we don't know what will happen. Um, they've used the word chaos, which is a very serious word to use in China because it harkens back to the 1989 um, demonstrations by, by democracy activists, which, were, which led to the crackdown on, on Tiananmen Square on June 4 that, of that year. Um, and they've also said um, that Hong Kong you know, needs to realize that um, it needs China, that Hong Kong is part of China, and that the economic links are too strong for, for, this kind of, um, for this kind of, these kind of protests to take place. So it's been um, basically they've been the the commentary has been more has been higher profile than the actual reporting of what's going on in the streets. Uh, Paddy Smith, uh, the international community, notably the Western democracies that claim to champion human rights, they've been pretty muted in their response uh, so far as well. Why? Well, uh, it, this is this is continuing in, in the similar vein to what we've seen over Chinese human rights issues for some time. The Chinese run a very very uh, successful but very bullying diplomatic campaign to tell people to mind their own business. In fact, there are Japanese uh, Chinese j- diplomats in in Washington this week telling the Americans uh, to to mind their own business um, on on this issue. Um, President Obama is due in China next uh, month. And there's the, not only for meetings with the Chinese, but at a meeting of the Pacific Rim countries, the Asia Pacific Economic Co- Cooperation meeting, and he will, he is very anxious that the issue does not become dominated by by human rights because they have other economic uh, interests that they want to put first. And by and large, uh, a lot of of the Western countries have actually accepted grudgingly the bullying that the the, Chi- the Chinese get involved in. Notably, uh, recently, uh, the South African government, which uh, barred a visit by the Dalai Lama to a, a, a conference of Nobel Prize winners. Um, and clearly, uh, they, they, um, the Chinese will continue to do this if, they, if they're successful doing it. No. There, I, should say, I should say there's a difference perhaps between the attitude of leaders and the attitude of, of, of the ordinary public. The, the, in recent days, there's been rallies in Singapore, in Seoul, uh, uh, in Manila um, and uh, in a number of other places, and you, you've seen quite some support in the region uh, for the Hong Kong students, but their governments are notably silent. To go back to the, uh, the, the, uh, the governmental response, given what you've described in terms of China's diplomatic approach, its intolerance of criticism of its human rights record, and its enormous uh, and growing economic power, is there anything the international community or, or other governments can do or should do? 
Well, that's that's two different things, and and uh, um, I think that governments that profess concern for the international human rights uh, issues should should be more vocal, even if that means paying a price in terms of of their. Uh, relationship with the Chinese. The Chinese will threaten them with economic uh, consequences if they if they speak out. And uh, I think the governments should be prepared to do it. I think the European Union in particular should be prepared to speak out. Uh, Clifford uh, Coonan, how are these events in Hong Kong being viewed by China's neighbours? And particularly, how are they being viewed in Taiwan? Well, Taiwan is obviously watching very closely because um, it, it's very much a case of there, but for the grace of God, go I. Um, you know, in any time there's talk about uh, Taiwan and being unified with the mainland, um, Hong Kong is always put forward as a model with this um, two countries, uh, uh, two systems, um, one country model. And um, that basically, if they can, um, you know, if they can replicate that for Taiwan, well, then, you know, it's a possible way forward. Um, they've said basically that they're watching it with interest. Um, and it'll be interesting, I think, to see um, what other, what foreign governments do about this now. I mean, um, you know, to you know, as Paddy says, you know, that, that um, you know they're, they're not doing very much at the moment. But in some ways, it's hard to know what the Beijing government actually can do because they can't really allow um, democracy on Chinese soil because it just opens a whole can of worms. So it's really, a, it's, they're in a, a, a difficult position. And when the Chinese are put into a difficult position, their reaction is to just um, shut down and say, this is a domestic issue, this is a Chinese issue, back off, this is, this is none of your business. So even with the foreign, uh, if the overseas community put pressure on, um, it's going to have to be a different level of debate because you're talking about fundamental reforms in, in, in China itself. And, and that's, that's a different question again. Uh, finally, Clifford, if these protests fizzle out or if they're neutralised by a deal with the government, is this going to be the end of Hong Kong's pro-democracy movement or are we going to see further protests in the future? Um, it's, I, think, I think we're going to see further protests in the future because I think a movement has been galvanised um, and um, something has been tapped in Hong Kong. It was always there. Hong Kong people have, have always been ready to come out and, and demonstrate in, in, for their rights and um, it's a very, um, on, on both sides, on both the pro-Beijing pro and on the pro-democracy side. Um, so I think you're going to see, I, I think the situation is far from resolved. And, and you know, even if these talks with, with Carrie Lam, you know, who's the, the second in command in, in Hong Kong, um, do lead to an end of the Occupy movement for now, they'll still have to, have to deal with these sort of thorny issues that, um, that it's going to have to try and find a compromise about, about more democracy in 2017. And again, that's going to be a difficult issue. So it could be that people are back on the street. Clifford Coonan in Beijing, thank you. You're listening to the Irish Times. You're listening to Worldview from the Irish Times with me, Dennis Staunton. 25 years after the fall of communism, Bulgaria has little enough to celebrate. Its population has fallen by almost a fifth due to emigration and a plunging birth rate, and it has the lowest standard of living in the European Union, about 50% of the EU average. Political instability hasn't helped, and three governments have collapsed since the beginning of last year. Bulgarians went to the polls again on Sunday, but although the centre-right GERB party of former Prime Minister Boyko Borisov came out on top, they'll need the support of other parties to form a government. 
I'm joined now from Sophia by John O'Brennan, a lecturer in European politics and societies in Maynooth University, and Patrick Smith is still with me here in studio. John, Boyko Borisov described last Sunday's election as the last chance to save Bulgaria. Is he the man to save the country? Uh, I have significant doubts about that. Borisov is a very complicated character, to say the least. He's a gruff populist, uh, extremely charismatic. He came to power in 2009 on the wave of uh, an anti-corruption campaign, promised that he would clean up Bulgarian politics and didn't. Uh, In fact, his own party, GERB, is deeply implicated in different forms of cronyism. Uh, to such an extent that Bulgarians concluded rapidly that they were simply exchanging one bunch of semi-criminal or criminally linked politicians for another. So um, uh, that, in a sense, partly accounted for uh, Borisov's being thrown out of office or having to resign uh, in early 2013. Um, But his comeback, in a sense, uh, was really based on the even more uh, astonishingly inept performance of the government that succeeded him, led by the former Communist Party, the Bulgarian Socialist Party. So that's the kind of vacuum, if you like, that was created by the mistakes made by the BSB allowed him to make a comeback. But the performance in the election where they, with most of the votes counted, uh, the GERB party is coming in with something under 33%. That was really disappointing. Not only is it not an overall majority and was very far from an overall majority, it was significantly less than some of the opinion polls were showing as late as a week ago, a week before the election, more or less. So uh, their performance is very disappointing. And the coalition options now that are open to GERB uh, are significantly more limited than they might have been. Now, John, writing in the Irish Times last week, you identified corruption as one of the biggest impediments in the way of Bulgaria's progress. Just how bad is it? Well, I think the problem is very stark indeed, and I think it's actually got worse since Bulgaria joined the European Union in 2007. Um, We have to go back to that period 25 years ago when Bulgaria, like other states, was emerging from uh, the socialist regime And uh, very quickly, it became apparent that uh, reds became browns. And by that, I mean that people who were formerly um, housed within the Communist Party and its different structures turned themselves into nationalists of one hue or other almost overnight. And they quickly began to occupy key positions within state agencies and so on. So there's a a pronounced uh, kind of view in Bulgaria that there was no real transition. Uh, and that the same people who were in power uh, during the socialist period simply mutated uh, during the uh, transition to democracy uh, and uh, managed to kind of carve up the key institutions and offices and agencies of the state amongst them. Uh, It's also the case that unlike in other parts of Central Europe, The Bulgarian Communist Party didn't, in fact, change very much. It held on in power until virtually a popular revolution in 1997. The country experienced a banking crisis then. Uh, A huge number of banks collapsed. People lost their savings. It was terrible hyperinflation. And 
uh, that was the point, if you like, where we saw the final defeat of the old Bulgarian Socialist Party. Uh, but nevertheless, it's hung around uh, and it's managed to be an important force in politics as a sort of counterweight to the right. But Bulgarians themselves will tell you that they don't believe that there's anything like a left-right cleavage, the kind of traditional political cleavages we find in most European states. Uh, in fact, that, that didn't occur. And what you've got are centrist parties that are only really concerned with and engaged with the distribution of offices and of spoils. So it's a classic kind of model of rent-seeking behavior on the part of uh, uh, political elites. Uh, but the more sinister thing, I think, in the Bulgarian case is that these are linked to shadowy oligarchs who are really powerful and almost controlling forces within the political economy model in Bulgaria. Now, you mentioned uh, the uh, banking scandal in the uh, 1990s. Uh, there's a, a banking scandal going on right now as well. Yes, actually, in late June, uh, there were uh, strong rumors in Sofia that a number of banks were um, under pressure. Uh, and this arose for different reasons, but primarily because of a clash between two very powerful oligarchs who had shares in the third largest bank, the corporate commercial bank, KTB, as it's known locally. Uh, there was even uh, suggestions that one of them had threatened to assassinate the other. Uh, so one of them then withdrew about 500 million euros or so from the bank, and that started a run on the bank. The government was then forced to intervene uh, effectively to take the central bank, had to take it over. Uh, but what they did essentially was to close the bank, and it's been closed ever since. And that means that there are about 200,000 Bulgarian people who don't have access to their savings. Now, their savings are guaranteed under EU law up to a figure of about of 100,000 euros. That's a, 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 the common European framework. Um, but actually, the Bulgarian caretaker government, which was in place uh, up to Sunday's elections, um, did not pay people out after 25 days, which was uh, expected within the model. And there's real dissatisfaction about that. But the more important thing is, and here there are real shadows of Anglo-Irish Bank, is that nobody quite knows the extent of losses within corporate commercial bank. Its leading shareholder, Svetan Vasilia, fled to Serbia. Uh, and he has been charged with serious counts of embezzlement within Bulgaria. So the government is currently conducting an audit of, of the banks, of, of, of the corporate commercial bank in particular, and nobody quite knows what's there. I mean, it takes us back, if you like, to the drama with Anglo-Irish Bank in 2008. Uh, and there's a lot of nervousness, I think, uh, about the bank. So the government will either have to choose to let the bank fail uh, and then um, compensate investors up to 100,000, uh, or it will have to take over the bank completely, and that will mean probably incurring um, uh, 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 an imposition on the state budget of about 1 billion euros. And for a very poor country, uh, that's very significant indeed. Uh, so there's a great deal of instability in how the new government actually deals with the problem within the banks, and I don't think it's limited to corporate commercial bank, how they deal with that problem 
will essentially, I think, decide the kind of direction of Bulgarian politics in the years to come. Paddy Smith, should the rest of the European Union be concerned about uh, the kind of political and corporate culture that John has been describing in Bulgaria? Well, they are extremely concerned. The EU keeps producing reports on, 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 on this and has has repeatedly told the um, Bulgarians to, to mend its ways. Several hundred million of uh, EU funds are currently on hold because of irregularities in the way that they're being uh, they're, they're, um, they've been administered. And uh, there is some suggestion that this um, lock on the money may be lifted, uh, but it it it's not clear to me um, whether that will be, and it's certainly not clear to me that anything has been done to remedy the the uh, the problems that that that. Uh, that were identified. When uh, all of these countries in Central and Eastern Europe, uh, the formerly communist countries, were joining the European Union, we were told, and Brussels tended to trumpet, that uh, part of the whole deal in joining the European Union was that the process itself tended to change the political culture and certain kinds of standards, which were common European standards, that they would emerge. That doesn't seem to be happening here. I think I think what happened was that there was a... Con- uh, in all of the, the countries, there was a convergence towards what might be called European norms. And there was... A, a, a gradually, as they um, approved what's called the acquis communautaire, which are the rules and procedures under which the European Union countries are, are governed, uh, they they began to 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 move in the right direction, but people were beginning to lose patience, and uh, they didn't want to hold them outside any longer, uh, and so they let them in before the the job was finished. And there was some quiet criticism at the time of 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 them doing that. And it wasn't it wasn't the first time. There's some people I remember when I was in Brussels complaining about Greece being admitted early to the European Union when it wasn't really clubbable yet, when it wasn't really up to up to standard. And certainly I, I think there there is a lot of feeling that that uh, Bulgaria and Romania probably weren't given uh weren't weren't forced to do more. And the problem is that the European Union, once they're in, doesn't have the same sort of leverage as it had when they were about to join. Uh, John O'Brien, you were saying that uh, corruption seems to have actually got worse since uh, Bulgaria joined the European Union. Has EU membership been bad for Bulgaria? Not necessarily, but EU membership was never going to be the kind of panacea that might fundamentally change the contours of politics and economics in Bulgaria. As we know so well, how you manage your economy and your political institutions domestically matters just as much, if not more, than any kind of transformative impulses that might arise from being part of the process in Brussels. I do want to agree with Paddy, actually, uh, about that issue of EU conditionality. Uh, Once the an aesthetic of conditionality was removed, and it was effectively on the first day of membership, then uh, the kind of material leverage that the European Union had in Bulgaria just almost disappeared overnight. It didn't disappear completely, and Paddy is absolutely right, that the kind of sanctioning mechanisms that are there under the structural funding regime are important, and they do make governments sit up and pay attention. But equally, uh, I've read all those reports, those cooperation and verification mechanism reports, year after year, and you get a sense, really, that um, there's a real, there's still an enormous gap between the way these 
the way Bulgaria uh, um, transposes EU legislation, everything goes on to the stat- statute books, but actually, and in practice, uh, the implementation is uh, is very, very lacking. And it applies actually across the board in so many areas. Just a little anecdote, I, I'm very frustrated when I walk into a pub in Bulgaria because despite uh, anti-smoking laws that are very similar to ours, actually, uh, you know, 50% of people transgress, and it's very common to, you know, to, to, to be in a place which is incredibly smoky. So the basic problem with the rule of law, if you like, is there at every single uh, level within the society. And the simple fact is that the EU has not done nearly enough uh, here and also in Romania and in Hungary, uh, which is raising alarm bells for other reasons and in a different kind of context. But the common denominator, I think, is that uh, there's a kind of indifference, if you like, in Brussels uh, once membership has been achieved and boxes have been ticked. And once the new institutions are up and running and in place, I think there has to be some very serious thought given to um, a new um, framework of sanctions, if you like, that will allow some kind of intervention in these societies. And that actually is what most people want here. John O'Brennan and Sophia and Patrick Smith here in Dublin, thank you. And that's all from this edition of Worldview. You can find more on all our stories at irishtimes.com and you can contact us at worldview at irishtimes.com. But from producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer James Davis, and from me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye.